How are you guys doing? Energy still doing okay? All right. Someone's alive over here. Um, so I have a challenge of introducing a panel of people. So there are four speakers tonight. I'm going to tell you, yeah, there's some excitement happening here. All right. Uh, I think it's been a really awesome day. And this is going to be, re- I'm very excited for tonight's session. So I got to meet with all four of them. I'm going to tell you first just kind of what's going to happen. And then I'm going to tell you some about the heart of what's going to happen. So there's four speakers. Ginger Cameron is going to be our first speaker. She's kind of the ringleader. Okay. Uh, yes. Ginger Cameron. <clears throat> then we're going to have Tracy Frame come up. Actually, so, G- so you guys are awesome. So Ginger Cameron is going to talk about kind of the history of opioids. Tracy Frame is the next one. Applause. Yes. She's, gonna, she's a pharmacist, and she's going to talk about uh, treatment. And then uh, Melissa Beck. Oh, whoa. look at that. Uh, she is going to kind of share her story of adopting her daughter who was addicted to opioids at birth. Uh, get ready for these. These are some tear-jerking things. And then uh, Joel Frame is going to come up. Yeah. Joel's got some supporters here. And he's going to tell his story. He's a recovering addict, and he's actually started a nonprofit called Battleground that's a hip-hop youth center. So I really like this dude. Um, and um, so that's going to be the sequence. They're going to come up and each kind of share their part. He's get, Joel's going to tell his story as well. So you're going to get a mix of kind of the history of opioids. You're going to talk about some of the treatment for the, for the medical kind of side of it, and then you're going to hear some stories. And I think they're... Their big heart in this is kind of trying to remove the stigma. That's their mantra. It's our mantra from this morning. So hashtag remove the stigma. Okay, that's our, that's our goal for tonight. I brought up tissues because I think they're going to cry. Okay, I'm going to cry. I cried when I was talking with them back there. So I'm down here. You're going to cry, I think. So just be ready. I've warned you. Okay. Um, so let me see if I can, if there's anything else I want to tell you. Um, the rest is kind of what they do. I think they're going to share some of their story. Their hearts are really for you to kind of see and experience the opioid crisis from different angles and for really a softening. So I want to coach you again. These are not professional speakers. So let's, I like in your hearts, I want a safe place for them to come up here and try to share something with thousands of people, whoever's in this room. So, safe place, praying for them, open hearts. I want you to hear whatever God wants to say to you through these people. Okay, so our first contestant, I'm just kidding. Our first person up is Ginger Cameron. Let's do another, yes. Jesus loves an addict, He loves them all. And he says that they will know who we are because we will love them too. And he reminds me of that every time I have come here and spoken in a small session and have thought, this is the last year I'm going to do this. Last year, I had a really rough time getting home. My travel experience was very difficult And it took me 10 plus hours, and I finally got home exhausted. And I'd had a fabulous time. I love GMHC. But I got home, and I was exhausted and tired. And I thought, this is really it. So I went home, and I told my husband, I said, I don't think I'm going to make the trip next year. And he said, we'll see. And I was like, no, really, I'm done. 
And so when the year came and they sent out the um, call for presenters, Tracy Frame sent me an email and she said, hey, let's do a two-hour intensive. And I was thinking, I wasn't going back. But I said, okay, I'll put it in. We'll see what God does with that. And so I sent it. And they sent me something back saying, hey, what do you think about coming into a plenary? And I'm like, you totally got the wrong person. I know that could be embarrassing for you, but I'm not offended. It's okay. You're talking to Ginger Cameron. And they're like, no, really. You're right. You're the right person. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back. Well, actually, I called Melissa back, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm in a panic. They've picked the wrong person. They need to make a, a different choice. And she's like, no, you can totally do this, and we'll go together. And I'm like, absolutely, we'll go together. So it told me that God really cares about this issue. And if God really cares about this issue, we need to also. And sometimes that's really hard, because sometimes loving an addict can be very frustrating and very difficult. But let me tell you something else that happened that day when I got home. My plane landed, and I live in Iowa, and I have an airport that's got two, literally two gates. And so it's tiny, and I walked out to a foot and a half of snow. And I was like, really, really, after 10 hours, and I get home, and then my car is buried under snow. And I didn't have a coat, because I'd been here in Kentucky where I didn't need one, and I didn't have gloves. And I didn't have even a proper Iowa form of ice scraper. I had one, a little, you know, one of those little ice scrapers. And so I get to digging my car out. I've got a foot of snow, and I'm out there with no coat, shivering after 10 hours, and I'm digging my coat out and thinking, And after a couple minutes, a, a guy in a pickup truck stopped. He saw what was happening, and he stopped me, and he said, you need some help? And I was thinking, praise Jesus, I need some help. I'm like, yes, I could definitely. I'm out there trying to dig my car like it's stuck in the snow, and I'm with a little snow scraper trying to shovel under my tires. I don't know if you've ever tried to shovel your car with a little snow scraper, but it does not work. So I get, I'm like, yes. Thank you, Jesus. I seriously was like praying, thank you, God, for sending somebody to help me. And so the guy gets out, and at first he's kind of assessing the situation. He's like, get in and start the car. So I get in, and I start the car, and of course the tires just spin. And he says, okay, let me, let me see what I can do. And he's got a shovel. So he starts shoveling, and he's getting the car out in no time. And then he says to me, you live in Iowa. Get a four-wheel drive. And I was like, yeah, I should have a four-wheel drive. I drive a Honda Accord. It's a 2002. It's old as old can be. And then he starts to kind of scorn me as he's digging. Like, I think he started having helper's regret. Like, why am I doing this? And so he actually started to regret that he was helping me. And then he starts to really scorn me and make me feel bad about the fact that I didn't have a four-wheel drive. And then he got my car out, and I was excruciatingly thankful, and he went on his way. And I thought, how many times do we... I actually got in my car feeling guilty and bad. And then I'm like, Ginger, you have a four-wheel drive at home. I have two cars in our family. One is a four-wheel drive, and one is mine. (laughs) Old. (laughs) 
My four-wheel drive, I left it with my husband because I, he has my children. And I didn't want my children driving around in the snow in a car that didn't have four-wheel drive. So the fact that I was in that position wasn't because I just gave up on life and settled down in Iowa with no four-wheel drive and in ignorance of the snow. But because I'd found myself in this position. And that's exactly where addicts are. Addicts don't need us to scorn them when we're offering help. They don't need us to make them feel guilty or bad about where they are. They already feel bad about where they are. What they need from us is the genuine help. They need a safe place. They need someone that they can come and talk to and say, I have a problem and I need help. And that we're not going to offer them scorn and judgment in return. This is what most people think of when they think of addicts. And this, these are addicts for sure, but these are addicts who are way down, way down the path. This isn't where they start. And so what I want to start with tonight, we're actually going to be sharing some very personal information tonight. And we have, it has been very emotional for us as we've prepared and talked about this. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to also be very vulnerable. And I'm going to ask you, if you're in the audience tonight, and you have been touched by addiction, would you just stand up? If you know someone, if you have ever suffered addiction, if you have a family member who's ever suffered from addiction, look around. This isn't what addiction looks like. This is what addiction looks like. We are the faces. We are the ones touched. And we are the solution. So I'm going to ask you to commit to praying for all of these people. Everyone here that's been touched by this issue, thank you. We have been touched by this, and it is rampant in the church, and we have to come together and find solutions. We have to be the voice and the safe place that people can go to and say, I have a problem with addiction. Val mentioned when he was up here before that, adi- that he thought we all had an addiction. And I thought, I'm so glad he said that because I want to point out some addictive qualities that we have. Do you know just 10 years ago we didn't even have smartphones? That statistic was shocking to me. Like, I feel like we've had these forever. Really? Ten, just 10 years? We've gone from we didn't have them until we touched them, picked them up, and used them 2,000 times a day on average. That's incredible. We have a problem, right? And people get mad at me because I am not one of this. I'm just, uh, cell phones and me, we just didn't ever get married. And so I can't ever find mine. The guy earlier was talking about, Will was saying how he has his phone and he, or his watch and he uses it. I use my watch to find my phone. It has the little dinger and I ding it and it makes my phone beep. And my children are like, it's right here, mom. I'm like, yeah, Sorry. So I have not been connected, but people get mad at me for that. Like, I tried to contact you, and you didn't respond. And I think, I know I'm terrible at that. I can't find my phone ever. But in general, as Americans, we are very uncomfortable without our phones. So you look at this and say, we all have some tendencies. There's something that probably all of us could say, I may spend a little more time with that than I should. And so I want to talk real quickly about what opioids are and give you a very brief history. If you haven't done the walkthrough, absolutely do it because it has what you need to know, all of the basics. 
But first, let's talk about what they are. The um, heroin opioids come from this plant, and it's a beautiful flower, and before it flowers, it looks like that uglier thing with the little um, shape on top. It's very distinct, and inside of it are these little seeds and a milky quality that's actually used to make the heroin and opium and opioids. When you start using this, it changes your brain. So here you can see two brains. One is healthy and one's on drugs. It takes 18 months of being clean, at least 18 months of being clean, for your brain function to return to normal. That's a long time. So it's important to remember that we believe, and I work in public health, and in public health we believe, first and foremost, that addiction is a disease. It is a disease that is preventable, it is a disease that is treatable, and it is a disease that has the potential to have lifelong impact. And we recognize that it alters your brain function, and therefore people are no longer making logical decisions once they have been addicted. So it's important as those of us around them to remember, and you think, how can they possibly do this? It's because they're not thinking right. Their brains are no longer working correctly. Another important element is that we believe in what we call silver buckshot, not silver bullets. There's no single solution to this problem. We have to look at all of the possible angles, and we have to find a series of things that are going to make a difference, not just one. For the sake of time this evening, I'm going to breeze real quickly through the history portion, but I want to just remind you to walk through the walkthrough because it has all of this information. But what I want to hit is the highlights that 4,000 years before Christ walked the earth, people were using opioids. This isn't new, and it's not something that we just suddenly realized wasn't good for us. As a matter of fact, in the 1600s, the Chinese used it very often in bathhouses, and it was very popular until they realized, this is really bad for you. And so they stopped in the 1600s. And yet somehow you jump forward to modern-day society, not quite modern-day, Bayer Pharmaceutical Company developed heroin. Now, back in the day when they did this, you just gave what you were testing to people. So their employees actually took it and were like, hey, I feel like a hero. And they named it heroin because it made people feel so good. They said, I feel like a hero when I take it. And it was an OTC. Go into any drugstore and you just bought it and took it home with you. And so people were doing heroin. The wild, wild west was full of it. Which may be how I got the name. Wild, wild. Then they realized this isn't good, this isn't healthy, and this isn't safe. And they took it off the market. And yet somehow we ended up putting it back. And we have now gotten ourselves into a situation where we have to find a way out. 80% of heroin users today started out as legitimate receivers of pain medication from their doctor. One year ago when I spoke here, it was 50%. And now it's 80%. 80% of heroin users. We are flooding the market, and we're doing it through our doctors, through legitimate 
people. I want you to hear that to know legitimate people with pain go to the doctor seeking help and by no fault of their own and not entirely at the fault of any medical professional, they become addicted and move on from there. The most common addiction happens in women and they're also the least likely to seek treatment because of the fear of losing their children and the fear of stigma. So it's extremely important that we remove that stigma and remove that fear. This is the true face of the opioid crisis. This is where it really began. But the question becomes, where is it going to end? And what are we going to do to get it there? And so I want to leave you with just this one last thought. In public health, we believe in a three-pronged approach. Prevention, intervention, and treatment. Prevention happens before somebody is ever in a situation where there's a problem. Intervention happens after. So if they're taking a drug already. And then treatment is because we recognize that even no matter what we put in place in prevention and intervention, there are still going to be people that fall into that category and need treatment afterwards. And so it requires all three. And currently what we have been doing and advocating as a populace is prevention, prevention, prevention. But we have to move beyond just prevention and focus both on intervention and treatment as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Tracy, and she's going to talk to you about some treatment options, and then I'll be back. Hello, GMHC. I'm already getting emotional. My students always call me the emotional professor because I cry all the time. Um, no, but I'm excited to be here tonight. And again, my name is Tracy. But substance user addiction is a disease that I'm passionate about and around daily. I live with someone who struggles with the disease. I work at a clinic with women who struggle with the, the disease every day. And actually, if we look at statistics, I work with about 15 to 20 students out of 100 every single day as well. So I wanted to show you these two women. And I wanted to ask you the question, which one do you think struggles with an addiction? If you say both, you're, you're right, and we are obviously talking about that, so I bet you guessed both. Um, but the one on the left is my friend Ebony. Ebony is a friend of mine. She's a 34-year-old young woman who started using inhalants at age 11. She was sexually abused starting at the age of 4. Then again at 14, and again at 17. She was duly diagnosed with substance use disorder, bipolar disorder, and PTSD. Her father was a recovering addict of 30 years. She has a chronic relapse history and has had multiple admissions to treatment facilities and psychiatric hospitals. Her longest period of recovery was three years and three months. She also obtained a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology and mental health counseling. The second, Linda is a 57-year-old woman who did the teenager drinking and smoking weed thing, starting at age 13. She got married at 28, had two children, one of which is a very close friend of mine, and then got divorced at 35 after having an affair. She struggled with co-occurring depression and undiagnosed bipolar disorder. She was introduced to opioids after a full knee replacement at 45 years old. 
She became addicted to opioids and hid her disease from everyone, including her children, who just thought she was always tired and fell asleep all the time. Or her daughter, who said, I would just be missing Xanax pills, and I didn't know what happened to them. In addition, she had multiple overdoses through the years where they just thought she was sick and didn't feel good. She also racked up over $150,000 in credit card debt at the time of her fatal overdose just three months ago. On August 1st, 2019. So looking at those pictures, you really can't tell that either one has a substance use disorder. At least I don't think I can. And many times you actually can't. Contrary to what people think, as Ginger already kind of talked about. The hard part for me when it comes to talking about the opioid crises and what we are seeing in our country is how so many healthcare professionals are denying people like these two amazing women access to medication-assisted treatment, what I'm personally talking about tonight, that could either, one, help people get into treatment, two, help people maintain recovery, or three, prevent people from dying like Linda. So you might ask, what is medication-assisted treatment, if you haven't heard of that? So medication-assisted treatment is the use of medications along with counseling and behavioral therapies to treat substance use disorders and prevent overdose. Medications can be taken on a long or a short-term basis. They can also be used to help people medically detox in a detoxification setting, or they can be used long-term as maintenance treatment to help people in recovery. Just some examples. I'm not going to go into these as a pharmacist. I want to. Before I came, I had like three slides for each one, and then I was like, this is a little too much. Um, But if you want to hear about it, I will be with Ginger tomorrow, and we can talk a little bit more about the medicines. Um, But quickly talking about the medications. So there there are three medications that are actually approved to help patients right now with opioid use disorder. There is methadone and buprenorphine, both of which are called agonists, and basically what they do is they activate the receptor to either a partial or a full degree. When they activate that receptor, they give you what opioids do, like heroin, right? So if you activate an opioid receptor, you get things like pain relief and euphoria and decreased anxiety. But you can also get pinpoint pupils, constipation, difficulty urinating, nausea, sedation, mental clouding, impaired judgment, slurred speech, and ultimately it can also lead to respiratory depression, which is what we see when we see people taking fentanyl. That's our pills that potentially are heroin that's laced with fentanyl. We see the overdose happening because it causes respiratory depression. The other option, naltrexone, is an antagonist, and it works by blocking the opioid receptors and the effects of opioid drugs if they were to take them. So specifically talking about each one really quickly, methadone helps with cravings and pain, is very long-acting, has the potential for overdose if not taken correctly. It can also cause withdrawal when people come off of it because it causes physical dependence on the drug. Buprenorphine also helps with cravings and pain, but is commonly used to help patients in the medically detox setting. Um, It's used to help pregnant women. So a lot of, or typically we put most pregnant women on buprenorphine, has a much lower chance of overdose unless someone's using Xanax or alcohol with it. And can, and can cause physical dependence as well. But this typically can be managed by slowly taking the patient off of it. And lastly, naltrexone helps with cravings as well. It is not a controlled substance um, like the other two because it's an antagonist and it blocks the receptor. So you don't actually see any physical dependence or euphoria associated with it. 
One drawback of it is that it takes three to 14 days to get a patient on this because if you start them on it when they used opioids recently, you will send them into acute withdrawal. So why are so many healthcare professionals afraid to use or avoid the use of MAT as an option for patients? It's because of many of the myths we see here. So I don't know how many of you have heard some of these, but we'll talk through them for a quick minute. But a lot of people say they are just substituting one drug for another. And actually what they have found that is that MAT bridges the biological and behavioral components of addiction. Research indicates that a combination of medication and behavioral intervention can successfully treat substance use disorders and help sustain recovery. MAT is a moral failure or a matter of not having enough willpower. Or MAT is only for the weak who can't do it without medication. This is the stigma, I believe, that we see for mental health in our entire country. Not just addiction, but mental health altogether. Sin entered this world, which led to issues such as this, and it will remain until Jesus returns. So I think addressing it and realizing that things like this are happening is extremely important. MAT is only for the short term. Research actually shows that, ev- that patients on MAT for at least one to two years have the greatest rates of long-term success. There is currently no evidence actually to support taking patients off of medications at this time. If p- patients do want to be taken off of it, we can follow a long-term taper schedule under a healthcare provider's discretion and working along with the patient. MAT increases the risk for overdose. MAT actually helps to prevent overdose from occurring. Even a single use of opioids after detoxification can result in life-threatening or fatal overdose. And we see that constantly. That's our biggest fear at my clinic is people that walk out the door that have been with us for four days and are leaving against medical advice that they're going to go out and use and they're going to overdose. My patient's condition is not severe enough for MAT. As discussed already, there are multiple options. Um, and we look at different options for the different types of situations that patients may be in. And MAT is a crutch on the road to recovery. Abstinence is the only thing that works. MAT is evidence-based and has been shown to assist patients in recovery by improving quality of life, level of functioning, and the ability to handle stress. Above all, MAT helps reduce mortality when patients begin recovery. So some truths. I already kind of talked a little bit about the truths against the myths, but other truths. It reduces or blocks cravings. It reduces the chance of relapse. It decreases illicit opiate use. It increases retention and treatment. It improves quality of life, and it improves health. When we talk about quality of life, that's decreasing crime. That's improving relationships with their family and their friends. That's getting their children back, and that's even maintaining a job. And improving health, we see much better birth outcomes for babies, and we also see the decreased spread of HIV and hepatitis. And finally, without MAT, it has been shown that abstinence-based treatment alone for opioid use disorder can have fatal consequences. Many churches and people of faith tend to push abstinence-based treatment on people because they just need more faith or they need to pray more, and they shouldn't need a medication to help them avoid the use of something that is devastating their life. So when we talk about MAT, ultimately, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And how do we determine as healthcare providers whether or not we use it? Well, nothing's black and white, as we know in the healthcare field. 
Each patient has their own story to tell. And it's not our story, it's their story. Because it is their story, we have to use patient-centered care. How are you going to truly identify and help determine what might be best for the patient if you don't have a relationship with them and they don't feel they can trust you, especially when it comes to something like addiction? Research shows that the most effective treatment of opioid use disorder requires the whole person approach. Therefore, we need to take care of the whole person, not just the addiction, but the whole person. And many times that's taking care of their medical needs, like chronic disease state management, or even acute care issues, dental issues, all kinds of stuff. Most of my patients have significant dental problems. We need to help them with their mental health. We need to get them into counseling and help them, with, um, help them work through their trauma and the problems that they face. And we need to help them re- recognize and cope in situations that they normally might use drugs in. In addition, we have to help by providing family therapy. A lot of times the family is a significant influence on the patient. We must find stable housing for them and help them get a job. And many times we have to help them work with the court system for drug offenses or even to get their kids back. The whole person approach may or may not actually include MAT. It's a tool on the road to recovery for people. It's important to remember the term medication-assisted treatment means that the use of medications is assisting in treatment. Just as we do not treat diabetes solely by giving insulin and syringes, we will not, successfully, we will not succeed in treating patients solely by providing medication for addiction. It requires the whole person approach. I think taking it even a step further for you all as Christian healthcare providers, we really have to see this as a big bigger issue than other healthcare providers. And it's not going to be easy, and it's a huge undertaking, undertaking, but it's a must. We have to meet patients where they are. I know you've probably heard that a thousand times this weekend. And honestly, that's with addiction or not. Jesus didn't hang out with the rich and healthy. He hung out with the sick and broken. And we are all broken, and we, but we all have different lives. Addiction is a disease that comes along with a lot of other issues, such as trauma and pain. Many people are using opioids to numb that. MAT may just be the option that keeps a person alive long enough to get them into a treatment program where we can come alongside them and share with them the love Jesus has. We must show them we are not another person who judges and shames them. They get enough of that from themselves. Trust me, I work with them every day, and they all, all struggle with tons and tons of shame and guilt. Just as a patient with heart failure is told to exercise or eat healthier or limit their salt or fluid intake, right? You all probably educate patients on that. It's ultimately their personal choice if they choose to do so. Do we place as much judgment as a person that walks into the emergency room because they have a heart failure exacerbation as we do a patient that comes in that overdosed on drugs and needs Narcan to save their life? We, have, we must have empathy as well. And I think one way to increase your empathy and understanding of the disease of addiction is to actually get involved. Maybe some of you are involved with patients that struggle with addiction, and maybe you're not. But going to NA groups or AA or HA groups, there's a heroin anonymous group now, or lots of them, um, and listen to people's stories. I think listening and understanding where people are coming from and seeing a different perspective or something different than you've ever dealt with can really open up your mind. People don't wake up one day and start using drugs. It's just not the way it works. It's a process, and to really understand that is integral to treating the disease. 
So get involved by volunteering in a clinic in your community that helps treat patients that have addiction. Every student that comes and works with me at my clinic site for a month tells me that their view on addiction changed 180 degrees after they were there. When you see that some of my patients were given a needle in their arm for the first time by their own parent because they refused to provide sex services asked of them, or some of them starting because they were sexually and physically abused starting at the age of two months old, or six months old, or two years old, or some of my patients who were physically beaten by a boyfriend in high school and their parents had no clue, and even so many of them who were started on opioids by us, healthcare providers, for a legitimate medical reason, it truly changes your perception of the per- person and the disease at hand. People are dying every day. Ginger already gave you those statistics. And if you go through the opioid thing, you will see that. But we must, as Christ followers, be the first to be willing to go into the trenches of death caused by addiction happening in our country to help heal the broken with the help of our God. Statistics state we all know someone, and you guys just showed that by standing up, who has an addiction problem. But what if it is your spouse or your brother or your sister or your mother or your father or your friend? Would you be more willing to help them? Would you be more willing to say maybe medication is an option? We have to be willing to accept the fact that sometimes abstinence works, but many times it may not, and MAT is needed. That it's better for a patient to be on medications than using heroin laced with fentanyl, causing them to die. Like my friend's mom, Linda, who lost her life this year and never had the chance to get help. It's funny because they found out she did talk to her health care provider the week before her death, and he did mention her getting help, but he himself was unwilling to do anything for her. People are dying because healthcare professionals are unwilling to put their biases and their judgments aside and are refusing MAT because of the myths we have heard. We must look at options for our patients and to have a discussion with them to find out what is best. We want to help patients like Ebony, who is currently working in a recovery program and recently became a first-time mom three weeks ago. Sorry. MAT can be a great option for some patients to not only get them to treatment, to stay in treatment so that we can truly start to treat the whole patient and their whole story. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to start by telling you a story of a 26-year-old woman who um, came to, uh, to the hospital. Uh, she was full term. She was uh, exactly 40 weeks uh, postpartum. I'm sorry, uh, post-conception. And uh, she delivered a healthy infant at that time. Um, she admitted to, the, um, to her physician that she had taken a hit of heroin an hour before she came into the hospital. And I've come to learn that uh, that's actually pretty common. Uh, deliver, uh, the, the pains of labor are so intense that many, many women who are addicted will take a, sh- uh, take a hit of heroin to ease the pain, and then they'll come in. Um, so the, the child was born. Um, she left. Uh, the hospital, uh, AMA, five hours later, so 
Within five hours of birth, she was out the door. And the infant, because they knew to be looking for uh, the heroin, the infant was evaluated for fetal, uh, fecal and blood samples and was identified as having, um, having exposure to both amphetamines and heroin. Um, so because of that, then, the healthcare professionals at the time started to do a, um, a Finnegan scoring assessment, and we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, they were looking for cl- clinical signs of withdrawal every three hours for, they thought that it might go for four days just to see. Um, and, and then once they started seeing signs, they, they determined that they needed to keep looking. So within 48 hours after birth, uh, that infant started uh, showing signs of withdrawal. And um, so that's my daughter. Um, uh, she showed signs of muscle rigidity. Uh, she had mild tremors. She had an increased respiratory rate. Uh, she had increased blood pressure. She had excessive crying. It was hard to console her. Um, she had skin modeling, and I'll show you a picture of what that looks like in a second. Um, she had sneezing that was uh, five, at least five sneezes in a row, which is kind of a strange thing, but it's one of the things that they'll look for. Um, she had excessive diarrhea. Um, and then she had skin excoriation. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what each of those really look like. So with muscle rigidity, so we went into the, my sister and I were there together, and we went into the, NIC, or the, the nursery, and we're very excited to hold her, and we picked her up and we thought, wow, this child has such excellent head control. You could pick her up and she's, already, she's just holding her head very nicely and... Uh, no, that was that was muscle. That was hypertonicity. Um, she, um, with the skin modeling, she had this just sort of checkerboard appearance on her skin most of the time, and some of that often looks like uh, a child who has uh, who's a little bit cold. But she would show it all the time, and it would get worse when she was upset. And I don't know if you guys have ever had a child, but it's hard to keep a newborn completely calm all the time. Um, so she would get, um, she'd start crying and then she'd get uncontrollable and so we'd have to try to calm her down. But every time she'd cry then, her blood pressure would drop, would increase, her, uh, her temperature would increase. And, and so then we would have this um, significant rise in, in, in symptoms. And then with diarrhea, what was, what was going on? She would eat just fine, but she would, every time she would eat, um, she would uh, have diarrhea, and it was it was so difficult, uh, or so much diarrhea that it was basically impossible to keep her diaper clean. Her diaper was constantly wet, constantly uh, full of uh, feces, and so every every hour or two we were having to check and sometimes change her diaper three or four times in a row in that in that uh, five minute period because she would have constant diarrhea, and because her she would have these wet diapers all the time. Her skin was just constantly red. Now, if you've seen a child with diaper rash, you know what a diaper rash looks like. But it would get so bad with her that she would have, um, she had a broken skin. So there was open wounds on her bottom from, uh, from the diaper rash. Uh, so um, as a result of all of the, uh, the signs that she was showing, her Finnegan score rose to uh, a level of nine over a period of a couple of days. And at that point, they decided we needed to start looking at at, at drug treatment. Uh, 
So when we're talking about um, Finnegan scoring, uh, this is a picture of of some of the uh, findings that we look for in a child uh, who has been exposed to heroin. And it's actually, the, the list is eight and a half by 11, so it's a full list of 21 different symptoms. And when you're looking at those, when you're looking for those symptoms, what you will do is um, you'll say, okay, yes, I see tremors, and you decide, are they mild, moderate, severe? And if you think that they're severe, it gets one number, and if you think that it's mild, it gets a different number, and all of that is written out for you. And, and as the healthcare professional, all you have to do is just say, yep, they have those things, check them off, and add up all the numbers, and at the bottom you get this number um, that you use to identify, well, what's their score? Any child that reaches a score of higher than seven uh, for three consecutive assessments is recommended for treatment, uh, for drug treatment. And Nora, she, she, hit that, she hit that number within 48 hours. So what were we talking about here? We're talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome. The March of Dimes defines neonatal abstinence syndrome as a group of conditions wherein a child is born having already been exposed to a drug of abuse prior to birth. So they come out, and at that moment, they are no longer exposed to the drug. So they've been cut off now. And and that is when their withdrawal begins. Unfortunately for these children, withdrawal actually doesn't show up in many cases for a couple of days. So it's very possible that if we don't know, if mom doesn't self-report that she has, uh, has been taking heroin um, or if they don't have a positive drug test on her, it's very possible that the child could go home without having been diagnosed and then other issues come up. Um, the signs for a child are varied based off of the drug that they've been exposed to. Um, so it's also very important for you to have a good understanding of what, what that drug actually is that they might have been exposed to. For my daughter, it was methamphetamines and heroin, and the heroin was really the big thing. Okay, so this is the true face of neonatal abstinence syndrome. This is my baby girl. She's wonderful. This is a picture taken when we were singing to her. That's not something they necessarily recommend, but she loved it, even in the NICU. Um, and what you see here, the skin modeling, that's the, the checkerboard appearance on her skin. Um, we were rubbing her back at the time. Um, but um, so she was just very calm at that moment. But the other thing I want you to notice is the, is the way that she's laying. So children who are addicted to or coming off of an addiction to heroin, they have very rigid limbs. You could, pick her, you could pull on her fists and her whole body would move. So she was completely stiff. It was very difficult to pull her arms away. And she, wasn't my first, she isn't my first child, but I forgot that she shouldn't be that, that controlled. And it wasn't until we gave her her first dose of methadone that we actually realized, oh, yeah, this is what a normal baby looks like. Much, her muscles would relax after we gave her her methadone. So uh, my sister likes to talk about the fact that it was difficult watching them addict my daughter to another drug to help her get through her, her, her uh, withdrawal. 
Um, now, so after, after she was identified as being addicted and that she was going to start going through this withdrawal, we had what amounted to about five weeks of, uh, of treating the withdrawal. But the first thing that happened was I got a call from the adoption agency and they said, okay, we found out that, uh, that your daughter or that mom, birth mom, uh, used heroin and that baby has, has, uh, been reported as having, um, doses or, or a significant level of heroin in her blood. So you can back out. And I said to them, uh, no one's taking my baby away from me. So, uh, just let you know, she's mine. You can't have her. Um, and, uh, at that point, then they said, okay, fine, let's go. Then, then the healthcare team came in and they really did a lot of education with me. My health, my, my daughter's healthcare team, they were wonderful. Shout out to all the NICU nurses out there. Shout out to all of the neonatologists because you guys are doing an awesome, awesome job. They told me I learned a whole lot about Finnegan scoring. They told me how it worked. They would come in, they'd do the scoring, they'd talk to me about how all of this was, or, you know, what she was showing. When they got her symptoms under control, they used methadone with her. When they got her symptoms under control, they immediately started talking about weaning and how quickly can we get her out of here. So that was wonderful. But the next thing that came up was that we're in California and I live in Ohio. And I wanted to get home to Ohio because I had a, an 11-year-old at home and I didn't want to be gone from her any longer than I had to. So then we had to start talking about how could we get both of us home. And that involved a lot of phone calls. I had to make calls to area hospitals, physicians who might be willing to work with us. Because in California, what they'll do is they, if, if there is a stable home environment, they will actually allow those children to wean off of methadone at home. You have to be in constant contact with your physician. They actually ask for two to three uh, patient visits a week while the child is, is weaning. But they do allow them to wean at home. And they were very willing to send us home if I could find somebody back in the state or back in the states, back in Ohio, who was willing to do that as well. In Ohio, that's not done. And I understand exactly why that's not done. But I wanted to be home with both of my girls. And so I was on the phone to folks in, in Columbus and I was on the phone to folks in Cincinnati. And by a sheer act of God, my, uh, my daughter's neonatologist out in California happened to have gone to school with a physician at Dayton Children's, and he said he would be willing to help the physician at Dayton Children's work through the process. So as the physician at Dayton Children's actually overseed, oversaw my daughter's pediatrician's um, efforts to wean our daughter, or my daughter at home. So because of those interactions, I was able to bring her home back to Ohio and we weaned her at home. Now that adds its own set of challenges because I had to go to the pharmacy to get methadone. And that's a little bit unnerving to walk into a pharmacy and say, here's my daughter's prescription. Yes, I and, and I need methadone. And they would look at you like, well, this is a very small quantity. Yes, my daughter is three weeks old. Um, can you give me her methadone now? 
Um, so there were a lot of, a lot of uh, interactions that felt a little bit embarrassing to me because I was worried about what they might think of me um, in terms of like, why, how, did you, how did you get this child addicted and what are you, what are you doing and why do you need this methadone? Um, everybody I interacted with was, treated me very kindly. They said things like, oh, bless you for, for taking this child into your home. And every time they'd say that, I'd be thinking, I'm the one that's blessed. I'm the one that's blessed. And so we worked through that process. But even now, so there's a picture up there of we all have secrets. Even now. You all know about my daughter, but there's a lot of my family who don't know that she's addicted. In fact, when uh, that she was in, she was born addicted. In fact, when we went to uh, get her, one of my aunts said to my mother, um, "Have they checked to make sure that everything's healthy with that child?" And my mother said, "Yes, she's she's doing okay." And they said, "Well, make sure that they've done some blood sampling because you don't want to get she doesn't want to bring home a child that's addicted. That's not any good." So that part of the family has no idea that my daughter was born addicted. Don't tell them. Okay. Uh, so, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's still that stigma, even, even knowing that I was not addicted, I still felt the stigma of trying to protect my child from family and from um, the public who might not understand. So when we're talking about uh, treatment. There's a, both. There's both um, drug treatment as well as environmental treatment. And dr- uh, with the drug treatment, I think I think Tracy did a wonderful job on that. Uh, the only difference I would say between what we do with adults and what we do with kids is that morphine's an option for for weaning children off of off of their addiction, and we wouldn't necessarily give that to adults. But in terms of the non-pharmacologic treatment, you often are encouraged to have a dimly lit room that it should be relatively quiet in there. Um, children should be swaddled. My daughter loved to be swaddled. We called her the little baby burrito. Um, and kangaroo care is a big thing. So skin to skin contact and then gentle rubbing or light, uh, light touching. But... What worked for Nora was sometimes the exact opposite. She loved to be sung to. She loved to have pretty forcible burping. I walked in one day and my sister is pounding her back. I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she said, oh, she loves it. Okay. Um, whatever. I guess it works. Um, and then um, pressure, pressure um, blankets or it was like a little pressure tooth bag that they put on her to keep her calm. So many of the things that wouldn't have worked for some addicted children worked magnificently for Nora. Um, so, there, so then what are the statistics? Well, we know that aside from the initial effects that we, that we identify at birth, we also have the issue of what the long-term outcomes are. We know that uh, there's a... A lot of studies indicate that there's a risk of developmental delay, so a delay in growth, a delay in uh, acquisition of landmarks. We also know that there's a uh, possibility for behavioral deficits as well as cognitive issues. And the thing that I didn't know until recently, and I'm very thankful I didn't know, is that there's an increased risk for sudden infant death syndrome. And in addition to that, 
If the child is not properly diagnosed and happens to go home to an unstable environment where one or more of the parents are still abusing their uh, their drug of choice, there is an increased risk for child abuse and neglect. Children, um, because they are incapable of controlling uh, their reactions to, to the symptoms that they're dealing with, they will start to cry incessantly, and a, a, a person who is dealing with an addiction may not be able to handle that as well as somebody who's uh, more uh, more stable. And so a lot of these children end up with shaken baby syndrome or have been neglected, and so they're not being fed the way that they should be, and they end up, it can increase mortality as a result. And we still don't even know what the long, long-term outcomes are. So what's going to happen to these children 20, 30, year, 40 years down the road? We do suspect that there's an increase in the risk of um, of addictive addiction for them as well, but I don't think that studies are still very clear on that. What we do know, though, is that um, the studies that are available, by the way, this is my beautiful two-and-a-half-year-old. Isn't she adorable? Yes. Um, Smart as a whip, very, very independent, also tells me everything that I need to do. Um, She, what we know about outcomes at this point is often still based off of um, studies that are done in children that have gone back into those unstable homes. So what we know may not be what we actually should be expecting. But we do know that the best way to support the appropriate development of a child is to provide family support. I got all sorts of support. People were, I had social workers, I had uh, nurses, I had neonatologists in there all the time working with me, making sure I knew what was going on. But that same stuff is not necessarily happening with women who are suffering from addiction themselves and or who are trying to get past that addiction, who are being treated for addiction themselves. There's still a lot of judgment out there amongst health care providers on those women. So we need to get past that and recognize these women didn't intend to do this. They did not intend to, uh, to have their children end up with uh, being, being addicted to these drugs. So let's just move on past that and give them the support that they need to ensure that the children are safe. And then I just want to leave you with one final thought. My child is evidence of the fact that Neonatal abstinence syndrome and addiction does not have to be the end of the story. Thank you. All right. I got the first win under my belt. This top step is like two inches taller than the others. So this whole time, I'm like, you better not trip on your face, man. I, uh, everybody, yeah, thank you, clapping for that first win there. Um, man, you guys did such a wonderful job, and I forgot I had to speak for a minute because I was so wrapped up in what you guys were saying. So while I get situated, Merry Christmas. 
We got any other November 1st, the Christmas carol start people in here? All right. You guys have a radio station here that's playing Christmas songs, and I'm just ecstatic. My name's Joel. I'm going to jump right into this. My wife is Tracy Frame, the one who spoke a little bit ago, a little cutie in the purple. (laughs) Super proud of her. Um... I first want to kick off with this. So in recovery, we have something called using dreams. And a lot of people from trauma experience these as well. What they are, are they're a dream where in that dream, you as the person in recovery are relapsing. You're using. And it's so unbelievably vivid That when you wake up, it takes a very long period of time to understand that that didn't actually happen. That it was just a dream. I've never experienced such vivid dreams in my life than when I got into recovery. It's been months since I've had one. And last night I had one. After preparing for this talk, which tells me that this is exactly where I need to be. Because using dreams are interpreted differently by many different people. For me, it's a direct attack from the enemy. Trying to tell me that all I am and all I'll ever be is an addict. It's not true. So, because of that, I ask that you please listen to what I'm about to say. Furthermore, the amount of people who stood up who have dealt themselves with addiction or have people that they know who are dealing with addiction, please, out of respect for them and respect for yourselves because you do not know what your story holds yet, listen to what I'm going to say. I first want to jump in. This may seem random, but I'm an Enneagram 7. Our educational system here in the States, the vast majority of us experienced it this way. We're taught to come in, sit down, be quiet, sit in rows, don't talk, study this way, take tests this way. If you get out of line, you get outcasted or sent to the hall or worse, the office. If you were really bad, you were suspended or worse, expelled. You were shunned. You were thrown away. You were made to feel abnormal or less than. I apologize for not having any slides. I was in the office during the PowerPoint lesson in school. (laughs) Unfortunately, we've modeled our churches under a very similar formula. Come in. Sit down. Be quiet. Don't rustle in your seat. Iron your khakis, start your shirt, fall in line. Also, be tame, agree, don't challenge. But we will ask you to go out and do the untamed, challenging, disruptive task of sharing the gospel. If you struggle with the palatable common sin, then we're here for you. We're here for you. 
If you struggle with the sin that we're not familiar with or comfortable with, or maybe that we deem as a higher class of sin, then we're not going to necessarily say that you need to leave, but we will certainly communicate that to you through our actions or tell other people in the church that you need to leave, like Kyle talked about this morning. You see, we're comfortable with sins that we have struggled with, but not with sins that we have not. But now we're coming to a time where the amount of people unaffected by this disease is getting less and less drastically. Almost everyone knows someone or who they themselves are battling with addiction. Yet we seem to have difficulty understanding the need for personalized, individualized ministry, discipleship. Instead, we may provide programs or fill a shoebox or do a clothing drive. And these things are good. I'm not bad-mouthing these things. But if on top of that, We are not getting our hands dirty like Jesus did and immersing ourselves in the lives of those dealing with sins or circumstances we aren't necessarily comfortable with, then we're missing the point. Mark 2, 14 through 17. And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are weak. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This example needs to be set from the top down. Instead of spewing hate about things like women in ministry, church leaders need to be focusing their attention on actual commands of Jesus, actual problems. Because now, instead of turning to the church, society's turning to things like Sesame Street to help rid the stigma of addiction. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's no exemption. I've got a good story about a woman in ministry. My wife... In my story, God used the obedience and the heart of my wife to love me into recovery. You see, I had been introduced to drugs at the age of 11 and continued fighting and succumbing to a battle with addiction until I was 33 years old. I spent my entire life being outcasted and made to feel less than by friends, family, and the church. My lack of a sense of belonging or having a purpose led me to attempting suicide when I was going into 11th grade with a 357 Magnum. 
As I fumbled through life from that point forward, I tried to find refuge and solace in the body of Christ. However, as I listened to other believers talk about addicts or families who had sons or daughters or mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters who were addicted, and I heard the way they were talking about it, I knew that this was no safe space for me to confess this part of my life. So what I did was I hid behind closed doors, attempting to beat it on my own, which I could not do. So in 2018, when my wife was leading her annual mission trip to Cambodia with a bunch of pharmacy students, I was planning to take my life by overdosing on heroin. I was at home taking care of our, at the time, three daughters. Now we have four daughters. At the time, we had three daughters. My parents weren't helping out. Things were getting bad. I went to my drug dealer's house one evening, and I stood on his doorstep with cash in hand, with every intention of buying enough heroin to take my life that night. And for some reason, which I now know is the Holy Spirit, But for some reason in that moment, I could not knock on his door. I knocked on it nearly every day since we had lived in Nashville. No problem. But for some reason this night, I could not knock on his door. And so I turned around, I got back in my truck, and I went back home. My wife returned shortly after from Cambodia. When she came back, she had spent about three and a half weeks away. So when she came back, she noticed a huge difference in the way that I looked. Now, she had been with me from the beginning of the year, obviously, even way before that. But since the beginning of the year, I had lost 45 pounds. But since she was with me all the time, she didn't really notice what the, the weight coming off, right? But this three and a half weeks away that she spent in Cambodia, when she came back, it was obvious that there was something drastically, drastically wrong with her husband. So one morning, shortly after she returned, she got it in her to just nag me to death about what was wrong, and she was not going to stop. So she followed me around the house, man, and she was holding our youngest daughter at the time, Georgia. Now our youngest daughter is Matilda somewhere. But at the time, it was Georgia, and she was holding her. She was following me around the house, and she was saying, what is wrong? What is wrong? There's something you're not telling me. Something is wrong. And I kept saying, nothing, nothing, nothing is wrong. I'm good. I'm strong. I can handle this. Don't worry about it. And she would not stop. She followed me into the kitchen, and I stood at the kitchen sink, and I pretended to do dishes. And she stood behind me and she said it again. What is wrong? You have to tell me. And so as I stood at the kitchen sink, I could feel something. Now, I'm no Pentecostal, but I could feel something in my toes. And it was moving up through my feet. And this is funny, but this is 100 percent. I'm serious. I could feel it coming up through my legs my knees, up my thighs, through my loins, into my belly. And I thought, what is this thing that's moving up through my body? 
And I thought, as it got to my chest, I said, oh, it's the truth. You're going to tell the truth. <laughs> right? For the first time, I lived a life of half-truths and secrets. And for the first time, I was about to involuntarily, by the power of the Holy Spirit, tell the truth. And so I had my hands on the sink. And as it came up into my throat and got to my mouth, I opened my mouth and I yelled out, I'm still using drugs, I'm still an alcoholic, and I'm going to kill myself. And to turn around and look at my wife was the longest moment I had ever experienced because I expected to see her back walking out of the house and taking our four daughters. But she didn't do that. She didn't do it. She took a step back. And she looked at me and she said, okay, okay, we can handle this. We're going to get through it. And so on June 16th of 2018, I found freedom from addiction through the program of Narcotics Anonymous because of my wife's dedication to pursuing me. And walking alongside and oftentimes leading me while she chased after Jesus. That is our calling as a church. We don't shy away. Don't be afraid. Walk forward boldly with the truth and the love of the gospel. So that those who are far can be drawn near. Pursue the battered and broken. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, how it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. We sing it, but will you join God on that mission? Please, as a recovering addict, don't leave us behind. <clears throat> don't leave anyone behind. I'm going to sum up my story like this. Orange bottles lying on the floor, teardrops surrounding them. Not a single pill found in them. I've pounded them. My wife's in the bedroom, sound asleep. I'm bound to see her take the kids and leave if I come clean. At least that's what the disease told me. Yo, I've been a fiend since my early teens. I never saw myself as anything more than that. So I pour another shot of Jack. I pull the bed sheets up like a body bag, hoping that she don't smell it on me. I can hear the devil calling. I could see Jesus in the rear view with tears in his eyes saying, where are you? Going, going, gone. Location on my phone ain't on. So she can't see him at the plugs house. Waiting on my turn like a dugout. When life takes a turn, I take the drugs out. Bite my tongue until there's blood in my mouth. I'm too scared to open up while I'm teaching my kids how to open up. Focus up. This a lesson of hypocrisy. No need for a hypothesis. I know where the truth at. I don't know where I left it though. Hiding in the shadows like a heathen. Seething with sickness. Waiting on a death sentence that I gave to myself a long time ago. Now I'm talking to my family on the phone from death row. Because we all sick. We fall quick. We've lost it. What's the cost? It's worth its weight in blood. 
Now I've been laying low, afraid to show my true colors, but now you know this is how the story goes. But it ain't how it ends, though. Oh, no. I could count my true friends on one hand, the same hand that held a pistol to my own head. Logic says I should have been dead a long time ago, but my God ain't logical. Better call me the prodigal, not the chosen one, just another chosen son. Better tell all my foes to run. The victory is won, but the sickness isn't done. It's a daily battle, enough to leave a grown man's cage rattled, bruised, and battered. That's why I'm tatted up. My scars tell the story of a man who used to weep while he'd watch his daughter sleep, not knowing if they'd wake up to a father lying six feet deep. This life ain't cheap. That's why it's worth its weight in blood. The cross is open to everyone. Everyone. for all of you. Okay, first, I just, I want to thank you guys for sharing, like each one of you. Um, that is courageous. Uh, it's and I want you guys to realize, like, how much courage it takes to, for each of them to, to, to come up here and, and share what they shared. Yeah, give them another round of applause. <clears throat> As I was just praying, you know, God, what do you, man, there's so much there. What do you want us to just focus on or think about. And I just like, I have this sense of, um, this, this is the word mercy. And um, man, life is hard, isn't it? Like, it's hard. The, the world is fallen, it's broken, it's hard. And people go through really horrible things. We go through really horrible things. And not everyone does. Like, some people have a life where they don't experience a lot of trauma. It doesn't mean you don't have brokenness. It doesn't mean you don't have pain. And you can't measure one person's pain to another. But there's a place of, I think, that God is like accenting or highlighting tonight for us to be a people of mercy. Like realizing each person has a story. And the more you hear their stories, the more mercy wells up in us, you know? Um... When it's not an addict and it becomes Joel. Okay? Maybe most of you don't know someone who's recovered or is dealing with addiction. Now you do. Okay? Joel is your friend. Okay? You've heard his story. You know him. When you leave this place, you have a friend now that has recovered from addiction and is recovering. Keep him in your heart and keep that story in your mind as you deal with other people. Um, The other idea that's in my mind is just trauma like people experience a lot of trauma in this world we experience a lot of trauma in this world victor frankel was a holocaust survivor and he he had this quote that i've been thinking about for the last couple weeks an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior 
we think PTSD, we think mental illness is like an abnormal thing. To go through what people go through and not get PTSD it would be abnormal. So the trauma that people experience in life and then addiction that comes from that, mental illness that comes from that, this cascade of things that come from pain that we experience in life, we judge the result instead of like looking for the story. So I want to challenge us as believers to hear the story, okay? Don't just judge the presenting thing, but like listen to the story and like you'll start to see that that what I think is abnormal behavior is actually normal based on that story. And we can have mercy and compassion. Like there are things in my life that have happened and I'm in situations and it's just like, it's abnormal to people who haven't experienced what I've experienced. But for someone who's experienced what I've experienced, that's actually really normal. So what I want us to do is like hear the story because what you'll realize is that that is actually really normal behavior and it makes sense for what you experience. And you know what people need to know when they feel abnormal? When they feel like I don't belong, like I'm different than everyone? You're actually human. You're normal. Like you're, you're with us. We're the same. And what you're doing, what you're showing, what, you're, what I'm experiencing of you is really normal. It makes sense for what you've been through. Now, I don't want you to stay there. Let's, let's go back. Let's take Jesus back into those things. Let's, there's healing. It's, it's not a death sentence. But if we can see the whole story, if we can see the abnormals that happen to people through life that makes abnormal behavior for whatever normal society is and start to accept those people and look for their story because that is where you're going to find Jesus. He wants to go there. So the abnormal things that happen to people, the pain places are where Jesus wants to go. And you know what the biggest gift in life he could give you is to let you walk in there with somebody. It's the most precious thing when he gives us the grace to like walk with a human being into their place of pain and see him meet them there. You want to be a healer? You want to be a doctor or a nurse? Like, this is the best place you get to go. And people will give it. Abnormal behaviors, addicts will come to you because of your medical profession, and we get to step into a deeper level of it. So hear, hear the story. So I just want you like, to know, man, you, I just want to say you belong. I just felt that, like, you belong here, you belong with us, like, you belong in the body, and uh, I'm so glad that you are. One other thing I've realized, I'm talking a lot, I'm sorry, but, man, the enemy comes at some of our most creative and some of our most passionate people. And if we could see those wild and crazy, like, people that were like, what is going on with that dude? And we're like, instead, we saw this like potential warrior for the kingdom who's got like insane potential to shift culture. If you saw Joel and you were like, look what he just did on this stage. That is like that's been in him the whole time. And that's what the enemy was coming after was to lock that down, to shut that up and to keep it ever from coming in front of you. Because he just glorified God with his story and with God's redemption of him. So I want you to look for it. I want you to look for it and I want you to see it. And I want you to ask God to like give you the opportunity to join him in what he's doing. And this is not just addicts. This is everybody. 
I would love to see the church a place where people come with their brokenness and they find Jesus. And there's people who are like, oh, you're broken. Great. That's human. Welcome. Where is he working on you? Let's talk about it. So I'm going to just let's we're over time. I'm just going to give you two minutes because I think it's important. Where is he working in you? Okay, we talked about addiction. There's all the everyone, you know, everybody has issues. I just want to take two minutes. I'm really going to keep it to two minutes. I want you to ask God, what is it in me right now that you're working on? What area of brokenness, what area of addiction, what, what am I not telling people because I don't think I'll be accepted if I tell them? What is it that you're hiding from your community, the people you love? Because I don't know if they'll still love me if they knew this. I don't know if they would still accept me if they knew this. Let me tell you, that is going to be your place of power if you bring it out. Jesus will meet you there, and he, will, he can handle it. Sometimes we're so afraid of sin because we don't know if God could really do something with that. And he can, I'm telling you. I've had almost every sin known to man, and he can do it. Okay? So two minutes, starting now. Silence. You ask him. gonna honor your time okay i feel like there's something happening here so this this night's not over but our time right now is over and if you came with people and there's something that's come up please share it with somebody um i want to leave you with this verse if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sin is normal human condition. The beauty for us is that Jesus can absorb, take, cleanse, and then actually change us. It's going to be your place of power. If something came up tonight, share it with somebody and invite them to pray for you. Invite Jesus into it. Um, So God, I just pray for this group as we go. Would you just make it a healing community? Would you transform? Would you heal? And would you make us a people of mercy? Amen.